Amen. We're continuing our way through the book of Acts this morning, working through the various passages, as is our custom. So I invite you to turn with me as we continue in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking, I think, pretty specifically this morning at verse 31. But in order to draw out the full significance of this verse and exactly what's being said to us in Acts 9.31, I'd also like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. Uh, we'll be looking at a couple of passages from chapter, uh, chapter 2 as well as chapter 4 uh, in due course. Uh, I just want to read this for you this morning, and then uh, we'll ask the Lord to help us as we, as we dive in. Uh, so we'll read, and then, as is our custom, we'll ask in prayer for God to illuminate the text, and then we'll get to work. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria... I just want you to notice this small exegetical point. I won't really touch on it much this morning. But it says the church singular, and then it mentions three different locations, showing a unity amongst all of these different disciples. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we come to you very much so battered and beaten from the winds and the waves of the world around us. Lord, we recognize that we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to you and to your church. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of your people gathered here this morning that you would show them that you can turn things around, that you can change any situation, that you are still God and still in control. And I pray, Lord, that as you lift our eyes to you, that our hearts would be encouraged and reminded that you love and care for your church and you seek to edify us. Lord, we welcome that edification this morning. We pray your spirit would shine upon the text and illuminate it and that you would open our hearts to understand and to believe what it is that you would say to us this morning. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This isn't so much the case today, but if you ever traveled by means of airplane before 9-11, very often, what I'm sure, and for those of you who can remember flying on an airplane before 9-11, I'm sure you can recall that you would get onto the plane you get seated, you get your, your carry-on luggage stowed, and at this point in time, somebody would come onto the plane, come onto the PA announcement system, and they would say something to the effect of, uh, this is uh, just a reminder that this is flight 682 destined for San Diego, and if San Diego is not in your travel plans, now would be a good time to get off the plane. And... Sometimes somebody would say, oh, I've made a mistake, and they would get off the plane, and they would, they would exit the plane. Nowadays, in the wake of 9-11, that doesn't happen. You're in your seat, we're leaving, and you're going to stay there and be calm, whether this is where you want to go or not. That's more or less the attitude that we find today. But there was a point in time in which the question was posed, if this is not where you actually want to go, now is your chance to get off the plane. And that's sort of a question that I want to pose to you this morning, First Baptist Church. Very often you'll have visitors who will come here from other churches, and you'll have individuals who, having been here for a while, will leave here and go to other churches. And 
Ultimately, what lies at the heart of this shuffle or this transition is the question, is this church going where I want to go? Is this church on a path or on a journey that I want to go on? And is its destination what I'm aiming for? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you from this particular text, Acts 9.31, an understanding of what we're doing here at First Baptist Church as we have been guided by God's Word. And this is a good moment for you to evaluate. If that's the destination, then perhaps I need to be on a different ship or a different plane, as the case may be. I want you to look with me in Acts chapter 9. I want to remind us of what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks before I jump into verse 31. In Acts chapter 9, verse 26, talking about, talking about Saul, says, When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Now, this is the mass murdering Saul. This is the persecutor of the church, Saul. And he has left Damascus because he was preaching the word there, and he, he, came, through, he came under persecution, and so he left Damascus, and he comes to Jerusalem. So he tries to join the disciples at Jerusalem, and it says they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And we looked at this last week. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus, which brings us to verse 31 and that word there, so. Now this is a little piece of Greek grammatical minutiae, but you need to understand that in the Greek, the particular construction of this conjunction Big word about to come at you here. This is what we would call a superordinating conjunction, meaning the clause that follows is superordinated to what precedes. Now you're looking at me, you're like, I don't really know what that means. A subordinate clause, just to explain this to you, is a clause that is secondary and dependent upon the previous statement for whatever it's trying to say. A superordinate clause is a clause that, although it follows, takes precedence over what has come before. So Luke's point in starting off here, Acts 9.31, is to tell you that the thing you need to take away from this whole encounter with Saul is that the church had peace. But that wasn't always the case. And if you've been walking with us through the book of Acts, you recall all the way back in chapter 7, Stephen gives this incredible speech upholding who Christ is, downplaying the need and the significance, the importance of the temple, doing away with all those sacrifices and all of those rituals, saying that Jesus Christ is now the person and the place where we come to God the Father. He gives this wonderful exposition, and for it, he is stoned by the Jews. And in Acts chapter 8, it says that Saul was there, and he approved of the execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This persecution against the church in Jerusalem has continued for some time. It has been a horrible thing to be a Christian living in Jerusalem for these period of years. This persecution continues all through Acts chapter 8 and all through Acts chapter 9 until we come here to this great reversal. The church is described by Luke here in 931 as no longer being persecuted. Instead, they have peace. God has turned things around. The persecution which had become part and parcel of their daily life has now been taken away 
And now they are described as having peace. How exactly did this happen? Well, that is the story of Saul. It would have been one thing, and entirely merciful and gracious on God's part, if he had taken the chief persecutor of the church, Saul, and simply had him drop dead. But that's not what our God did. No, much, much more magnificent and more miraculous. Jesus took Saul, the chief persecutor of the church, and transformed his heart, changed his life, and saved him, such that he is now not, no longer the persecutor of the church and not merely just an ordinary Joe attending church. No, he is now one of the fiercest advocates for the church and for the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. When Luke writes for us, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, he wants you to understand something miraculous, something truly supernatural has taken place. Whereas the church was under duress, whereas the church was under threat and attack and persecution, now they are not. I happen to know as well from reading extra biblical sources, particularly the account of Josephus, a Jewish historian living at this time, that at the time, approximately around when Saul was converted, the emperor at that time, the Caesar, uh, Caligula, had sent one general to Jerusalem, a general by the name of uh, Proteus, Proteus, I think is his name, with instructions to erect a statue of Caligula in the temple to be worshipped alongside the other deity that is worshipped there, which was Elohim, Yahweh, the Lord, but no longer in the coming of Christ. But the Jews still held very much to that temple tradition. And so they lost their staunchest persecutor of the church when they lost Saul, who was converted by Christ. And in addition to that, God is bringing outside political pressure to bear on the Jerusalem, the, the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem, so that they are now distracted from persecuting the church. They've got bigger fish to fry. They have other things to worry about. And it is into this historical context that Luke says, now the church had peace. And what did they do with that peace? Did they sit back on their sofas and flip on Netflix and cruise Facebook on their smartphones and just sort of enjoy it and say, whew, I'm glad that's over and done and behind us. Let's all just kick up our feet and relax and enjoy the sunny days that have arrived. No, that's not what the text says. This is important for us to look at, church. Last week, you get the impression that as a Christian living here in Canada, that we are on sitting on a tinderbox of sorts, a powder keg. That more and more it is not merely that Christianity is shunted to the side and ignored, but more and more you're beginning to get the impression that there is a real hostility, a real animosity, stronger day by day, that is bubbling up against Christianity, against the church, against Jesus. This last week, uh, I was surprised just to watch the media coverage of the political going-ons here in Canada. The liberals, fearful of an imminent defeat in 
the election this fall in the wake of the SNC-Lavalin affair, the corruption that involved our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, launched an attack against the conservative challenger, Andrew Scheer, in which they resurrected comments from 2005 uh, that he had made regarding his views on on gay marriage. Comments which, by the way, I thought were fairly benign, rather watered-down, milk-toast types of comments. Nonetheless, the liberals salvaged these comments and blasted them out into the public domain. And I bring this up this morning not to really comment one way or the other regarding the political situation in Canada, but simply to say that to watch the media pounce on these comments and to demonize Andrew Scheer, it really is hatred. It really is a scorn and an animosity of any authority, any, any suggestion that there might be a greater wisdom, that there might be a higher power, that there might be a God out there who loves us and would have plans for our lives, purposes for our lives that are ultimately intended for our blessing. All of that is rejected. To suggest that used to be considered, I would say, backwards, you know, you're just one of those oddball Christians and we can just politely ignore you. You're allowed to have your faith. But more and more, and particularly in the wake of this last week, more and more you begin to see that there is indeed a hostility that is surfacing. Now, when we look at the church around the world, I'm thinking of Christians in the Middle East. I'm thinking of Christians in China. Currently, the social credit engineering that's happening there, the fact that the church is being driven underground, they're not allowed to meet openly, publicly, that there are both Christians and Muslims in China that are being sent to what are uh, rather benignly referred to as re-education camps, prisons more or less, where they are indoctrinated day after day in communist dogma. When I think of the persecution that is happening to the church around the world, I think, relatively speaking, we have it really good here in Canada. And I think you and I ought to rejoice that God, as our pilot of our plane, has given us this season of relative peace. But looking at the church in the book of Acts, our pilot just as easily could sail us right into the storm. We can draw from this particular verse, verse 31, that there is a season of persecution that God can use for his glory. But as the Lord of the church, as Jesus himself said in Matthew, he will not allow the church to be destroyed. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And we see here that for these guys in this particular place, it was his desire to miraculously save their chief opponent, to transform him into one of their allies, into a fellow believer, and to give the church a season of peace. Meaning when the pressure was getting the hottest, when it was getting so unbearable that you begin to wonder whether or not these guys guys can continue on in the wake of all of this persecution, God intervenes and he gives them a season of rest. We find ourselves, comparatively speaking, in what I would describe as a season of relative peace, a season of rest, but it's not going to stay that way for long. What did they do with the peace that God gave them? Look at the text. 
It says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, notice this, and was being built up. Built up. The Greek word is oikodomeo. It is to erect a structure, to put into place all of the supports. It's an architectural term. It's a contracting term. It's a construction term. You're building a house. And the statement that Luke makes here for us is that with the peace that the church was given in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they were being built up. It's in the passive, meaning they were allowing the Lord to build them up. But it poses the question, how exactly does that happen? How is it that the church is built up? We recognize we have a season of peace here, and we thank the Lord for it, but it, it begs of us the bigger question. Are we taking the time that the Lord has given us, and are we using it wisely to be built up? Say, Pastor, I don't know what that looks like. Flip with me, if you will, over to the book of Ephesians. There's two passages that I want to draw your attention to this morning from Ephesians, just to illustrate exactly what I mean by that. The first passage comes from Ephesians. uh, It's from chapter 2, and I want you to look uh, with me at verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19. The apostle Paul, formerly Saul, writing to the church at Ephesus, makes this statement in Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers. He's talking, he's talking to a church that is, consists primarily of Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians. And so his first statement is, unlike the Jews, you used to be separated from the word of God, from the promises of God. You didn't know anything about God. But he says that's not the case anymore. He says you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, same Greek word as what we saw back in Acts 39, 31 built, notice this, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, this is metaphor. He's not talking about the Ephesian believers as literally being a house, standing literally on prophets and apostles and Jesus. Metaphorically speaking, he is likening the church at Ephesus to a house, and he says that their foundation is the prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, the New Testament guys, and Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. What ministry do those three share? What do those three, thing, those three individuals have in common? Namely this. The Old Testament prophets proclaimed the word of God, bearing witness to the coming Messiah, to Jesus Christ, that he would come and that he would save his people from their sins. And then Jesus is the one who comes. He comes as the incarnate word of God. He is the word in the flesh. And then to help the world understand what they had largely missed, Jesus sends forth his apostles who also speak forth the word of God, bearing witness and testimony to the Messiah who has indeed come. What do these three have in common? Namely this, they all share in a ministry of the word of God, which means that to be built up, to answer this question for us this morning, to be built up, to be edified, Ephesians 2, 20 gives us the answer. Built, number one, on the preaching of God's word with a central focus on Jesus Christ, who is himself the word. 
That is number one. That is line one. That is day one. That is all that we need to stop and think about. That's not you. If you're not an individual who seeks to base your life on the word of Christ, on the things that God speaks to us from his word, you're not using this time of peace the way God intended you to. You are to be built on the word of God. Look at the next verse, 21. Having done this, Paul continues the metaphor, having been established on the foundation of the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, in whom, you're you're built on this, in whom, the structure is being built on these things, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. As we participate in Christ, hearing the word, Paul continues this expression a little further. And he says, in not only are you standing on the foundation of Christ, but as you are standing on the foundation of Christ, you are also standing in Christ. Meaning that all those who are standing on Christ form, as he uses this metaphor here, a temple of Christ or a body of Christ, as he says elsewhere. And as any one of us stands on that word, we stand in a company of others. And he says, you're being built together in Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the verb was passive. Luke says that the church had peace and it was being built up. Meaning that their being built up was something that was being done to them. And you ask the question, how was it done? Paul gives us the answer. It was done through the preaching of the word. It was done through the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. But Paul takes it a step further. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 11. Speaking again of Jesus, who is the one who builds his church, who does desire for you to be built up. Ephesians 4, 11 And he, this is referencing uh, Jesus. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, there are those guys again, and he mentions a few others, the evangelists as well as the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Notice this next word, same Greek word, oikodemeo, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, so Paul's statement there is, Jesus wants to build his church. The church is built on the word, prophets, apostles, Christ the cornerstone. And on top of that, Paul says, he has given apostles, prophets, the ministry of the word continues. He mentions evangelists, and then he goes on to mention the shepherds, the pastors, the teachers. He has given these as gifts to the church for building up the church. To what? To what end? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have a time of peace here, relatively speaking. We have a reprieve from the pressures of persecution. God, as our pilot, has allowed us, relatively speaking, a season of reprieve from those who are hostile to him. 
And the question that this text puts to us is how are we using that time? And the answer for the first century church ought to be the answer for the 21st century church. The answer for these guys living in Jerusalem ought to be the answer for you and me. They had peace and they were being built up. So as we enjoy this season of peace, do we seek to be built up through the ministry of the word? Do we seek to be equipped, to be equipped to build each other up from the word? What we take away from this passage is that in this season of peace, God absolutely does want to build our church. He wants to build it up. And it starts with the pulpit. It starts with the preaching of the word. But it had better not end here with the pulpit. It had better end with God's people taking what they learned to be true from God's word and applying it in their lives and seeking to use that knowledge to be a blessing to each other and to those beyond who are not Christians, to be a blessing to this world. You know, um, I always hate to mention health health metaphors or health illustrations because invariably somebody will say, hey, you want to go running with me tomorrow? And I hate running. I don't want to go running with anybody. So I'm about to talk about health stuff and I always get those emails and those text messages. Pastor Josh, you mentioned Sunday church, you lifted weights or you went running or you did something. You want to go with me? Son? I don't want to do it with you. I'm sorry. I, I just don't. I do it. My wife will bear witness. I do it. And I love you. I just don't want to do it with you, all right? My schedule, I'm going to hide behind my hectic schedule. You never know when I'm going to have the opportunity to go running. But uh, I'm going to use a health metaphor here. Uh, a number of, uh, a number of uh, I guess it's probably two years ago now, I had sustained an injury to my, uh, to my arm, and it was impacting uh, my arm, and I was, I was lifting weights, and it just kept getting worse and getting worse. So I went to the physical therapist, and the physical therapist did a couple of things. She kind of poked and prodded and, you know, bent my arm this way, bent my arm that way, looked at it, and then she said, oh, you know, here's what the issue is. You've got this pulled tendon here, blah, blah, blah. And then she gave me a, a piece of paper with um, some exercises, and she had done some things to kind of assess the flexibility of my arm. She said, okay, well, here are your exercises. Go, go do these exercises and then uh, schedule with the receptionist on your way out the door to come back in two, three weeks' time, and we'll see how you're doing. So I went to the receptionist, and I scheduled it for three weeks later. And then do you know what I did? I didn't do anything. <laughs> I went home, and I had this little uh, piece of paper, do these exercises, do these uh, stretches, and I didn't do them. I just, it's like, yeah, no, you start into it, you're like, ah, this is kind of dumb. I don't, you know, I'm not going to mess with this. I go back three weeks later, and she's like, well, how'd it go? I said, it went pretty good, I think. And she says, really? How's your arm? I said, you know, it, it's been better. She said, let me, let me take a look. I was like, all right, here we go. You know, she's going to take a look. She begins to bend it and twist it and do those things, and she's like, it's still pretty stiff. I'm like, yeah, she's like, did you do the exercises? I'm like, no, I didn't. You know, I... And so she says to me, what is the point of you coming here to do this if you're not going to go away and do the homework and try to actually improve 
It's expensive. To, she told me, it's expensive to come see me. And it was. It, cost a, it, wasn't, it wasn't cheap. That's for sure. She said, you might as well get your money's worth. And that's the truth of it. If any one of us were to go to a gym or to go to a doctor or anything like this, and we were to step into the gym that first day, and the trainer there on staff were to measure us and put us through our paces and time how far we could run and how fast we could run and how much weight we could lift, and then he kind of just sort of shut his mouth and didn't say anything, and we didn't do anything with that information. We come back six months later, and he were to put us on the same treadmill, take the same tests. He might find that we have actually gotten worse, but for sure we have not gotten any better. And the question is, whose fault is that? Lousy trainer or lousy trainee? It could be lousy trainer. It could be that he gave us bad advice. But more often than not, it's simply a reluctance to hear what is being said and to choose in faith to put into practice what God has revealed to us. In Acts chapter 9, Verse 31, God performs the greatest possible miracle. When when I think of all of the miracles that God has performed throughout the course of Scripture, from the parting of the Red Sea to calling down fire on the prophets of Baal, all of the different miracles, really probably the only thing that is more miraculous than this is the, the coming, the birth and the coming of Christ. But apart from Christ, when I think of all the miracles. I cannot fathom one, in my own estimation, more spectacular than the chief persecutor of the church, the one that wants to eradicate the name of Jesus, coming to a point to where Jesus is the only name he wants to preach. And the church seeing that and being alleviated from all the persecution that this man had unleashed on them takes that opportunity to say, I'm glad God took care of that. All right, let's kick up our feet, get into our lazy boy, and watch Netflix. No. Out of praise for the Lord. They continued, as it says before in the book of Acts, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to be devoted to the gathering, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, to be devoted to being built up as a church. That's what they were devoted to doing. And Acts 9 continues, verse 31 continues. They were being built up passively, And it says, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fear of the Lord. Fear and comfort. These do not sound like complementary ideas. To be afraid is to be terrified. To be comforted is to be soothed, to be reassured, to have peace. And how is it now that we put these things together? In Scripture, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, are not opposites. But we see here that the church, when following the Lord, when seeking to be edified, built up, these are not opposite ideas for them. They are complementary. They go together 
perfectly. I want to start with the, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, I suppose, one way to say it is to say that it's that sense of awe, that sense of reverence, that the Lord God is infinitely holy and infinitely powerful. And as a holy and powerful God, infinitely so, he is not one to be trifled with. He is not one in which you want to play games with him. You don't want to dally around with the Lord God Most High. This fear of the Lord is what the disciples felt when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And this fear of the Lord is what the church felt when they saw Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5 drop dead, struck down by God as a result of trying to lie, as the scripture says there, not to men, but to the Holy Spirit. If you look at Acts chapter 5, the account of Ananias and Sapphira, they had this land, they sold it, they said we sold it for $5,000, and here's all the money. When in actual fact they sold it for $10,000, but they wanted to keep back half of it for themselves, but they wanted to portray themselves as having given the full amount. Peter's rebuke, he says to them, how is it that the Lord has filled your heart to lie. And then he makes an interesting statement, to lie to the Holy Spirit. He says, you haven't lied to men, but to God. And if you actually look at the account, Ananias is lying to men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. As we saw at that time, there was obviously this understanding that as people filled with the Holy Spirit, we have an obligation to speak truth to each other. Here, we have the fear of God, this understanding that comes upon us when God shows himself so powerful that he can turn any situation around. He can transform any predicament, no matter how impossible it is. He can do it, and he does it, and he does it in such a way that it's so miraculous that you know it has to be God. It cannot possibly be just a coincidence, just some random happenstance event that took place. No, God orchestrated this. God walked on the water. God struck down Ananias and Sapphira. God converted Saul into becoming the Apostle Paul. God can do these things. He is not a God to be trifled with. He is a God to be feared. And the church feared the Lord, having seen the conversion of Saul and the reprieve that came as a result of that. The next statement that Luke makes is that the church walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, which begs the question, how exactly do these things go together? To walk with God, to walk with him, is to know that he holds you in his hand. But what drives you to him is the knowledge that if you don't walk with him, there could be disastrous things that lie ahead. I think, and particularly I'm drawn to this, this analogy because of recent events in, in the Atlantic Ocean with uh, Hurricane Dorian. We just came up with this this morning. You read this morning that Hurricane Dorian has strengthened to a Category 5 hurricane and that it is sweeping across the Bahamas as we speak. What's interesting is um, 
in the very center of that storm is what is referred to as the eye of the hurricane, the center. And it's a span of about 25, 30 miles across, it varies. And in the midst of these howling winds that are speeding around at speeds of up to 175 miles an hour with this pounding rain, dropping feet of rain over the course of just a couple of days, in the midst of this storm surge, if you enter into the the eye of the hurricane, it has been described as calm. Waters are relatively still. Not a lot of wind there in the eye. And in some rare instances, it it could even be completely clear of, of cloud cover. You can, in the center of the storm, be looking up at a blue sky with the sun shining. And yet, if you pull out your binoculars and you just look 20 miles in the distance, you would see the raging wall of water circling around you. When the scriptures say that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was a church that was fully aware of the power of God, the ferocity of God, but was also fully aware of the heart of God to love them to care for them, to make them more and more day by day like Jesus. They were being built up. So they understood the fear of the Lord and they also expected and counted upon the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to you and me today. There are two things which I think are devastating the church in North America. And I see it here all over Kamloops. And indeed, it's here in First Baptist. Believers, you and me, who enter into our faith with Christ, enter into our walk with our church, embracing an overly consumeristic mentality. We live in Canada, the land of the free, capitalism, free market economics for the most part which instills in all of us this understanding that when we walk into any particular store, when we go to any particular business, we go as consumers posing the question, what do I get out of this? What do I get from this store? What do I get from this business? What do I get from this company or this service? How will it benefit me? And is it valuable to me? Does it measure up to the price I'm willing to pay? And of course, being dutiful capitalists, being well-educated consumers, we want the most product, good, or service at the cheapest possible price. And we find that when we enter into the church, very, very much is that the mentality of many of us when we go to church. I'm going to go to this church because I like the children's ministry. I'm going to go to this church because I like the sound of the worship team on stage. I'm going to go to this church because I like the preacher. We enter into church, and I've said this many times, as though it is a Walmart of sorts, dispensing spiritual goods and services, and we want to get the most we can out of it for putting in the least we possibly can 
into it. You don't find that mentality anywhere in Acts 9.31. In fact, you don't find that mentality anywhere in the book of Acts. Let's just take chapters 8 all the way through to chapter 9. We have a man who decides he's going to eradicate the name Christ from the face of the earth. He goes to the chief priests. He gets letters from the chief priests giving him permission to go and arrest and throw into jail all those who call upon the name of the Lord. It's not a cool thing to be a Christian. They're not getting a happy life. They're not having it made in the sun. It is not a life of ease and pleasure following Jesus. Not at all. Not like what we experienced here in Canada so far. Such that when Saul is converted and saved, the church rejoices. So the church had peace. And did they then enter into a consumeristic mentality? No. They allowed themselves to be molded and shaped by the word of God, to be built up into the body of Christ. A second problem that we have. Problem of content consumption. Our experience of Christianity has largely been reduced therefore to the ideas we think about, the doctrines that we are taught. We consume the faith as though it is simply an intellectual endeavor. We go to hear interesting things. We want to go because we want to know what the Bible has to say. And in much the same way that we will scroll different news outlets and different websites on our phone, consuming content, we come to church just to consume content. We come to consume content. But the Christian experience is not one of simply consumption. It is one of walking. Draw your attention back to that last word there, Acts 9.31. Notice this. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You see, the church understood that being built up, having had the word of God preached to them, having learned the truth of who Christ was, what he did, and how he lived, they also were called to walk accordingly. If Jesus served the poor and the unfortunate, then the church understood their call was to go and serve the poor and the unfortunate. If Jesus washed the disciples' feet, if Jesus led the disciples in prayer, if Jesus was involved in teaching and all these different things, then the disciples understood that was also their calling. Whatever they found their Lord and Savior doing, they themselves were called to imitate that. Over and over again, we find this word, imitate me as I imitate Christ, rife throughout, guess who? All of Paul's letters. Walking, not merely consuming, not merely absorbing content, but taking those things, embracing them, and producing. That is, serving one another in love. That is, giving to each other. Those passages we read from Ephesians chapter 4, he gave gifts to men. He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherd teachers for the equipping of the saints for ministry. When I was graduating from Dallas Baptist University, for fun, my friend bought a bucket of golf balls and took me to a lake in which we were just going to smack these golf balls out into the lake. I, it, was, it seemed fun at the time. Now I think back on it, I'm like, that was 
Why did I do that? I don't know. But uh, there we were on the edge of this lake. There was a little dock over the side, and we had teed it up there in the sand, and we took, we took our drivers, and we just watch that golf ball fly. And of course, you know, you can't, with the waves, you didn't always, couldn't always see where it would land. So you tell yourself, you're like, well, I must have hit that thing a good 400 yards. Yeah, I'm driving that ball. Look at me go. And we're just driving ball after ball, some 30, 40 balls. We just whacked out into the, into the lake. And we were pretty impressed with ourselves. Look at us go, just whacking balls out into the water. And then a friend of ours drove by, and he pulled up, and he, he said, hey, what are you guys doing? We said, we're whacking balls out of the water. What does it look like? Well, he says, I don't know why you're doing that. We're like, yeah, it's kind of fun. You want to try it? And he came out, and he was watching us. And he is actually a golfer. We don't. I don't golf. We're not, I'm not a golfer by any means. And he's watching us, and he's like, so you think you're hitting that ball pretty far, do you? We're like, yeah, yeah, it's going good ways, 200, 300. I think that one went 400 yards. He says, you really think so? I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And he says, if I were to put a flag in the ground, say 400 yards away, do you think you could hit the ball at that flag? Nobody wants to say no. Nobody wants to say yes either. He drew our attention to a poignant fact. I, in particular, when I hit, I tend to rotate my wrists so that the face strikes the ball, the face of the club strikes the ball open, so that the ball slices. My friend, he tends to hit it with the face turned inward so that the ball hooks. Yeah, we were driving it 200, 300, 400 yards, but we weren't going in a straight line. You see, when you're not aiming at anything, it's relatively easy to be assured of virtually any and every kind of success. If we don't know where we're going, and if we don't know what we're driving at, then we can just come to church day after day after day, week after week after week, and we can be relatively assured that what we're doing here is pleasing to the Lord, that what we're serving and engaging in is satisfying to the Lord. But if we were to stop and actually measure what we're doing according to the Scriptures, if we were to actually plant a flag in the ground and say, this is what Christianity looks like. Are we driving the ball where it needs to go, where Christ calls it to go? Are we driving it at the flag before us? Are you, to point the finger, are you being edified and built up in such a way that you become a blessing to those around you? Are you engaging in service in the church? Are you being equipped for the works of ministry? And then having posed that question, are you actually doing it? See, this church is not built up simply by coming and hearing a guy talk from the scriptures for 35, 45 minutes. This church is built up when Christ speaks to us and we receive that word in our hearts by faith. And then we seek to obey in faith. You say, I hear you, Pastor, but for so long, I just feel that my faith is a dry faith. I feel that Sorry about that. Don't mean to be booming at you like Darth Vader. 
You say, Pastor, I, I don't know how I can get back to that devotion. And my answer to you is that it is simply a reminder of the love that God has for you. Devotion comes from being reminded of the love of Christ and dying for you on the cross for your sins in your place to reconcile you to God. That's what it comes from. I want to close this morning by sharing with you a little bit about Murphy's Law. I'm sure you've heard of Murphy's Law, the famous adage, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. I did some research this last week. Murphy actually is a doctor, a physicist to be precise, working with the United States Air Force. And in 1950, looking at the increasing speeds of jets and the increasing altitudes that planes were flying in an effort to study these pressures that are being exerted on pilots' bodies, a series of tests were devised in which they wanted to assess pressure on the body, how the body responded to pressure. They wanted to look at things like the heart and the lungs and how the blood moves and all of these sorts of things. And so they designed a rocket mounted to rails. It was a sled mounted to rails that was rocket-driven that would accelerate in the course of four seconds from zero to 700 miles per hour. Many of you are thinking, I've got a really fast car that goes zero to 60 in six seconds. This thing went from zero to 700 in four seconds. It had hydraulic brakes engineered into it that would slam the sled to a complete stop from 700 miles per hour to zero miles per hour over the course of 2.5 seconds. And they threw a guy into this, a live man who volunteered. And this is really the hero of our story a doctor in his own right, Colonel John Stapp. He got into the sled. They hooked up all the sensors to him. The physicist, Murphy, hooked the sensors to him to measure what was going on. And they threw the switch, and the sled took off. Colonel Stapp describes the pressures that were exerted on his body as being literally crushing. Ha, 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 ha. No pun intended, I'm sure. The sled came to a stop, and the pressure was so great that one of his eyes popped out of its socket. He anticipated that. In fact, he'd spent several weeks before practicing being blind, dressing himself in the dark with the lights turned off. He had been made fully aware that this was something that could happen. The pressure was so great when he slammed to a stop. He had not only one eye pop out of socket, he had blood coming out of the pores of his skin, blood coming from his nose, from his ears, from his mouth, from just various fissures that just opened in his skin as a result of the pressure from his blood on the inside trying to escape. Medical personnel rushed to the sled, got him out, began treating him, caring for him. And Murphy, the famous, the infamous Murphy of Murphy's Law, went to the sled to get the readings of the instruments and found out that he had forgotten to plug them in. Now, the real hero of the story is Colonel John Stapp. It took him about nine months to recover, and two years after the first test, he did it again. Colonel John Stapp, having had his eye repaired, having recuperated sufficiently from his injuries, strapped himself back into that rocket-powered sled. And before they flipped the switch, he said, just double-checking, we've plugged everything in, right? 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 Say, what could propel a man to do that? What could drive a man to give himself in that way? 
reading the account of Colonel John Stapp. He's a Texas boy. He grew up in uh, he grew up in San Marcos, which is a stone's throw from Dripping Springs, where I'm from. He grew up there. He attended Baylor University, where he was majoring in English. He was an English major, and while there at Baylor University, he was recruited by his aunt and his uncle to look after his nephew. They had to work, so he took off some time from school in order to look after his nephew, who had been severely burned over the majority of his body. And during the course of his time nursing that nephew, uh, that nephew passed away. Colonel Stapp writes in his biography, he says, quote, It was the first time I had ever seen anyone die. When I saw his nephew's name was Charles, when I saw Charlie die, I decided right then and there that I wanted to become a doctor and to do what I could to help spare people from the agonies of being burned. He graduated from Baylor University with a science degree, but he came from a poor middle-class home, couldn't afford to go to medical school, so he continued to just work by night and plug away at his, at his education. Eventually, he went on painfully slow over a course of a number of years, putting himself through school. He went on to get a doctorate in biophysics, and at the age of 29, he finally was able to afford the first payment for medical school, and he enrolled in medical school. During World War II, he enlisted in the United States Army Air Corps at the time, and following his service in World War II, he continued on with what would eventually become the Air Force. He became enamored with aviation medicine, specifically concerned about the effects of the ever-increasing speeds and heights that planes were traveling, the effects that it was having on the minds and the bodies of the pilots. To this day, the Air Force attributes nearly all of the technology used in ejection seats. Indeed, some of the parachutes that were designed to slowly deploy, to gradually slow someone down. Even the technology that you will find in hospitals. If you've ever had a major surgery, undoubtedly you'll not recall they put, you were going to be laid up in a bed for a while, they put those pressure cuffs on your legs that kind of squeezed your legs every now and again to keep you from forming blood clots. All of this technology, all of these medical advancements came from Colonel John Stapp sitting in a rocket sled not once, but twice in order to get these measurements to conclude these experiments. I said, why did he do it? He did it because of his love for his nephew. This morning, I'm calling you, church, to fellowship with each other, to be built up as the body of Christ, to give yourself to each other, to walk together in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. If Colonel Stapp could strap himself into a rocket-propelled sled for the sake of a two-year-old nephew, can we not love each other for the sake of a Galilean carpenter who died for us? I pray you would. I pray you would and that you would find the blessing that waits for you there. Pray with me, church. Father, we, we thank you. 
the vision of ministry that you have for us, whatever season of life we may find ourselves in, whether it be in a season of persecution or a season of relative ease, which we know now, Lord. We pray, God, that whatever season you take us through, that we, Lord, would strive to be the body of Christ, to invest in each other, to walk together, being built up by you, O Lord. Father, as we look back at the summer and we look at the number of babies that were born and and just the blessings that we have so enjoyed here, we know that they come from your hand, Lord, but we know they're not promised. But what is promised is that we would always walk with your son, that he would always walk with us. And God, we pray that you would help us to walk together with each other and with him that we would see that you are the pilot that directs this plane wherever it may go, that we would stay true to you. Father, help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.